Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo. I'm joined by James Pereira QC in today's episode. James was called to the bar in 1996 and appointed as Queen's Counsel in 2014. He specialises in planning, environmental, local government and administrative law. In this episode, James considers how he has utilised the communication skills he's developed as a coach and applied them to his trial advocacy. Hi, James. Hi, Bibi. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, please? My name is uh, James Pereira. I'm a silk bar. I specialise in planning and environmental law, compulsory purchase, land compensation. I'm at Francis Taylor Building. I was called in 1996, took silk in 2014. I'm also a professional certified coach and I do coaching and training and organisational coaching, particularly for lawyers and been writing, co-writing a piece in The Lawyer called Loving Legal Life for about the last half decade or so, which is all about professional performance, well-being, upskilling, things like that. Now, that's a lot, and I'm sure that you were very different at the start of your career. How would you describe yourself as an advocate at the very beginning? That's interesting. So, as a barrister, as a whole, I kind of felt like an outsider at the very beginning. And maybe there are little bits of me that still do now. You know, I didn't have any family in the law. My parents are both immigrants. So it was all kind of quite new to me. All my siblings are all medics and so on. So I always had this sense that my belonging in chambers was always kind of contingent on how well I was doing, you know, even when I was taken on. But actually, as an advocate, I always kind of came alive on my feet. So it was a, that was always a different experience for me. I absolutely loved being on my feet. I've always loved cross-examining I've always loved being in the high court, arguing things in front of judges. And I would say to people in the early years, you know, I get home at the end of the day and it would be like I hadn't been at work all day. I'd just been having fun. And that was great. I didn't realise it at the time, but I guess I was kind of connecting with something within myself that I hadn't really had much of a chance to express, which was about communicating and connecting with other people and having, having fun and playing through that, really. So as an advocate, I was always very comfortable. As a barrister, <laughs> I was less comfortable, I would say. That's a great distinguishment between being a barrister and also being an advocate. It sounds like you were a natural when it comes to advocacy. Do you think that's a fair description? I think when it comes to communication more so, I think the technical sides of advocacy I found quite difficult to start with cross-examination in particular. I can still remember planning my first cross-examination and having these plans of this um, pub that was being converted to a house out on the kitchen table in front of me and literally being up until four or five in the morning on the day of the hearing, just trying to plan what was probably a 30-minute cross-examination because I just found it painfully difficult trying to figure out what I was supposed to be asking and what I needed to get out of the witness and how to ask it. And for me, it was a really, really hard grind trying to work out the technical sides of things. And I think a lot of that came down 
to trying to be a different kind of advocate to the one that came naturally to me. I think I had a sense of there was this kind of external being that was the cross-examining barrister that I was trying to become rather than trying to figure out how I could cross-examine for myself, if that makes sense. That's come up quite a bit in our um, podcast, namely that it's, in terms of advocacy, it's really about finding yourself in, in your voice. So how did the real you compare with the cross-examiner that you were trying to be? So the person I was trying to be was a man of a certain age and a certain racial profile that I'd come across at Middle Temple Advocacy <laughs> training events that, I have to be honest, absolutely scared the life out of me. These trainers in those days, so in the 90s, were so different to anyone I had ever come across in all sorts of ways. But one was kind of given the impression that, you know, this is who you need to become if you want to succeed. And it wasn't my style or experience. I had no one really that I knew in my kind of private life who I could mimic to be like that. On one advocacy like weekend thing we did, we had to go to a court and make submissions to a judge. And it was a real judge. And it was, a, I think it was a bail application. And we were all sitting in a row and then we had to stand up and take our turn. And I remember doing mine and the feedback I got from the judge was, Mr. Pereira, you sound more like a television host than you do a barrister. And my response was, that's really interesting because I've always been interested in being a television host because <laughs> I was, <laughs> you know, I used to like that kind. I used to really admire these people that could sit down and just chat with people and draw in the crowd. And so I kind of didn't see that as a criticism. I saw it as a quality, but it didn't seem to be one that anyone in the higher establishment really <laughs> valued or recognised. So that's the difference between kind of who I was and who I thought I had to become. And I guess my journey, and I suppose like many other people, as, as you're intimating, has been one of becoming myself and leaving behind the preconception of who one is supposed to be. Was there a particular point in your career that you thought, I'm actively going to improve my advocacy? Or was it more of a gradual trial and error? And as you became more and more experienced, became even better? So I think for the first few years, I just worked hard and, you know, there's so much at the bar, isn't there, apart from advocacy that we have to deal with, whether it's the kind of legal side of it or just the nitty gritty of running your practice and getting clients and all of that, that I didn't really have much space or time for focusing on my own professional development beyond doing the job. I was a judicial assistant in the Court of Appeal in 1996 when I was first called. And I can remember one day that one of the judge's clerks, I think it was Lord Justice Sheeman's clerk, came running down to the bowels of the Court of Appeal and ushered us all up and said, you must come and see, you must come and see, you must come and see. There's this guy on his feet and the judges want you to see him. And I've been trying to Google his, because I can't remember his name. And he was one of the big commercial advocates of the 90s. And he did lots of kind of banking cases and so on. And so we all came into court to watch this guy. And it was absolutely phenomenal. He was talking about the driest kind of stuff. It was all to do with contract and commercial things and banking. But he was absolutely captivating. And I remember him building up to some point and had us all hooked. And then he said something like, but my lords, that will have to wait until after lunch, looking at the hour. 
and, and cliffhanger and it was and I thought oh god this guy's this guy's fantastic you know I want to come back and I want to hear what he's got to say and the judges loved him and I realized that they didn't love him because of what he was saying they weren't telling us to go and watch him because of what he was saying they were getting us there because of how he said it and they all loved the guy and I wish I could remember his name and that really kind of sparked an interest in me of how can we draw people in and how can we tell stories? And even now, you know, I keep an eye on the clock. And when lunchtime is coming, I'll try and have a, like a cliffhanger or a nice smooth rounding off or something so that it kind of leaves people tantalized. And it was little glimpses like that. And I'm bound to say also, you know, knowing that at some level, the legal establishment kind of approved and was quite charmed by that, that opened the door for me to feel that it was okay to develop my own style and my own way of doing things. But I think probably for me, it came after about, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years call. Then I started to keep notes after cases of things that were, I felt hadn't gone well. Also things I'd seen, which I admired in other people. I'd start to keep little notes. I've got them still. I still keep them in my draft email box. I'm on about like 0.87. <laughs> and it's just, and it's like a little diary record of things that have worked or things that haven't. And I glance at it every now and then if I want some inspiration, just so that I can build on that history, because it's very easy to forget things, actually. Just looking back at that experience you had with that eminent commercial silk, and just for those listeners who aren't in England, a silk is Queen's Council. What I was wondering about is if you've been able to decode what made him so great. Do you know what it was, what those building blocks were that made him so captivating? I think storytelling has got a lot to do with it. And there's a certain kind of essence that really struck me when I saw him. And it's something that I try and create. And it's the ability to kind of dance, if you like, with whoever it is you're interacting with, the witness or the judges and be agile and kind of rise above the all of the preparation and all of the detail and be so on top of it and so well prepared that you can dance around in the courtroom in the way that best suits the moment. So I think it's also to do with presence as well. I think one thing that struck me, what he just spoke. I mean, I can't remember him looking at the papers. I'm sure he must have looked at the papers. I can't remember making any references to anything that I'm sure he must have made reference to him because everything was woven into this wonderful presence of a kind of power and a journey that just carried you as the listener. It was gorgeous. It was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, this was what, 25 years ago, and I can still picture the guy. I can still remember sitting there thinking, wow. And how close do you think you've got to that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult to know how other people see us, isn't it? But we can check in with how we feel. And I suppose for me, I feel good about my advocacy when I feel that I've been free enough to move away from my notes, take the points in the order that, you know, they're flowing from the witness or from the judge rather than the order I've pre-planned. That ability to be agile, I think, is, is something that I take pleasure in because it means you can dance in the moment. And I think that's great fun. I was looking at the legal directories and they are full of glowing testimonials and recommendations, particularly in respect of your trial skills. It says, he has a refreshing and innovative approach and is very knowledgeable. He's quick to think on his feet. That was from Chambers and Partners 2020. An excellent communicator and lateral thinker, Chambers and Partners 2020 again. 
An absolute master at identifying the key issues, he has complete mastery of his subject and is very commercially astute. And finally, incredibly quick at assimilating huge amounts of information and focusing on what really matters. And that was from Chambers and Partners 2015. Now, three things arise out of this that I think we can explore further. Firstly, being identifying the key issues. Secondly, assimilating huge amounts of information quickly and then lateral thinking. We've all been against someone who hasn't quite got the key issue of the case. How did you start to master um, identifying those key issues? What's your process? Before answering that, can I just say something about directories and all of that stuff? I've been very lucky. I think anyone who gets in the directories is very lucky because we rely on the kindness of others to say nice things about us. And um, it's a kind of lesson really for anyone that we can all, however good you are at the bar and however bright you are, so much of one's success relies upon the breaks and the kindness of other people. And it's just worth remembering not only for senior people, but for junior people working their way up. We're not exceptional, actually, at the top. Many of us are just lucky and have worked hard. And those two things and being kind to each other just goes a long, long way, I think. So that's not to dodge your question. (laughs) I have had times in my career where the thought of preparing a case has literally made me feel physically sick. I haven't been physically sick, but, you know, it's kind of like climbing up a mountain And I know that I'm going to enjoy the view when I get to the top, but the actual process of getting to the top can feel quite (laughs) soul-destroying sometimes. Now that I've shifted to electronic, um, you know, having all my papers electronically, that's helped a lot process-wise. I tend to read stuff really, really super quickly through once without really any care for anything, just to see what pops into my head. And not to mark up anything, but just to whiz through things, make sure I kind of know where different documents are and just see what I absorb. And then what I do is I tend to start small and work big. So I will find what looks like, you know, the key document. So if it's a judicial review, then it will be the decision and the reasons for the decision. And then kind of work outwards from that. So if I'm going to understand that decision, what are the documents or reports that are referred to in it, what are the public consultation responses that have been referred to and whatever else, and kind of work out from that. That works for me because there's only so much energy from time to time you can apply to preparation before you need to take a break. And so starting at the heart of it and letting the heart of it act as a roadmap through the case, I think is good. It certainly works for me because it means that I'm focusing on the important things where my energy is high And as you get more uh, further away from the core documents, when my energy starts to taper off, it doesn't matter so much because the stuff in in the periphery kind of often stays in the periphery. So that's one thing I do. And then the other thing I'm always running in the background is what's the story? You know, everyone does things for a reason. You know, contracts get breached for a reason. Decisions get made for a reason. Chemical spills happen for a reason. What's the story? Because everything in the case and the way you present it's got to make sense within a framework of human behavior that people can relate to. And obviously, if you're for the other side, they've got to have their story of why it makes sense. So I kind of hold little windows open in my mind with things in them that I'm gathering up. And then I'm at some point, I know in the case preparation, I'm going to have to put the pieces together like a kind of picture in a jigsaw and make something, a story out of it within which 
my submissions or cross-examination or anything will go. So I guess for me then it's bird's eye view very quick, then it's starting small at the core and moving outwards and, and, and getting the core to act as a roadmap and then keeping open this ongoing process of how do I build things into a story. Those are probably the three main things I have actively going on. I don't know if that makes sense to hear it. It certainly does make sense and also leads me into my my next question because you've already said that you go through and read quite quickly, but how do you assimilate all of this, all these masses of information and process them so you actually understand it? How do you assimilate the information quickly? Do you have any tools or apps that you use? How does it work for you? (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure. (laughs) Assimilate is a funny word, isn't it? Because from an outsider's perspective, it kind of has the feel that I must be, or the, the barrister must be reading everything and then somehow sifting it. I don't find it works that way for me. I find my eyes like skimming over things and then it will be caught by something or it will stop at something. And so my assimilation process is really reliant upon having sufficient understanding or kind of background knowledge or context about the case to have the faith that when my eyes are skimming over stuff, the really relevant stuff will cause me to pause and jump in or write a note or something. I'm not really one for, you know, making long chronologies. I just reminded me of something now that this is another thing from those middle temple advocacy things, right? All these schedules of facts and chronologies and all the rest of this. And I, I, I used to think, my God, how soul destroying to sit down and kind of take the spirit and soul out of a set of papers by reducing it to a set of dates and events. And I've, it's not something I've ever really done myself. I might do a short chronology on things. And so, yeah, I've never been methodical in the kind of way that I was told that I should be, but it seems to have worked so far. Well, let's get into that because I love a schedule. I love chronologies. For me, I really get the story. I really feel like I'm being quite hands-on because I'm getting as many details and putting them into a schedule of some sort. And I really like it. But you don't do that. For other people who are listening, they might not be on the same page as me in terms of schedules. So what else can you do instead? So there are two things. Some of my work, not all of my work, is forward-facing. So like planning work often is about creating something for the future. So actually the facts are facts of the procedure, you know, when did the consultation take place, or they're facts about the nature of the development, but they're not facts about a whole host of events in the past. But some of my work is about events in the past. And I think actually what I tend to do is build the chronology up through my cross-examination. That's how I, that's, it's really through planning my cross-examination that I get a grip on the facts. And it maybe it's not the most efficient way, I don't know. You know that great book that I think you might have even had the authors on, that, you know, The, the Science of Cross-Examination, the Posner and Dodd. Yes, yes. But yeah, such a great book. It's such a great book. And, and what it really gave me and got me out of that story that I told you about earlier, where I'd spend hours panicking about cross-examination, was just using cross-examination as really the, the main tool for organising and sorting out the case. And I guess that's probably what I do rather than start making schedules or chronologies. It will come through that way. I certainly, it might be quite inefficient in the sense that it might mean that from time to time I'm looking up things again and again because I can't quite remember them, but that's just the way of it. I can really see the benefit in 
in terms of looking at cross-examination, getting your chapters, organising them. That is enough, definitely another way of dealing with the facts. So that's really helpful to hear. So the final thing that I wanted to ask you about in relation to those wonderful testimonials was about lateral thinking. And just to be clear what I am talking about for our listeners, that's the manner of solving problems using an indirect and creative approach by reasoning that is not immediately obvious. So how do you employ lateral thinking in your cases? This is what I would say. So the first is I, some years back in 2014, uh, maybe 2015, I went and did a creativity workshop for a week. There's a couple of really talented trainers and they run something called the Creativity Workshop, creativityworkshop.com. And that really opened my eyes to kind of creative processes, making sure that both left brain and right brain are engaged in assessment and analysis and judgment and organization and things. So I will often, in fact, the more difficult a case is, the more I will tend to use pictures and diagrams in my early case preparation rather than words, because it enables me to get a quick grasp on something. And sometimes I share it with clients as well. Some clients quite like, you know, they'll see me with a picture at the end of the conference table. They'll say, oh, can we have a look at that? <laughs> so, so I use that. I guess the other thing is, one thing I do now in a way that I never used to do and that I never really saw being done very much is in the early parts of cases, I spend a lot of time listening to other people in the team. I imagine myself with a funnel and holding a funnel open. And so if we're at the stage of, you know, where we've got to draft pleadings or we're thinking of what the case strategy is for the evidence and what we're going to bring to it, I will think of myself as holding a funnel open where the best answer is going to come by packing as much information and ideas and thought and debate and everything into that funnel. And the longer you can hold that funnel open and the longer you can put off reaching a conclusion, the more likely it is that your conclusion is going to be not only resourceful, but what you might call out of the ordinary or not obvious, because it will be informed by as wide a range of inputs as possible. And it might be that maybe that's what people mean by lateral thinking. I have no problem, and it happens quite often, going into meetings saying, you've asked me 10 questions, I don't actually know the answer to any of them, but I'm pretty sure by the end of the meeting we'll have, <laughs> we'll have figured it out. Because when I was doing pupillage and then working with other people, there seemed to be this idea that if you were a barrister, you were asked questions in your instructions, which you were supposed to know the answers to when you walked into the meeting. And you kind of think, well, what's the point in having the meeting if I already know the answers? I might as well just send a, might as well just send a fax or an email and be done with it. So there must be a reason why we're all talking. And then, you know, all these other people have been working on this case far longer than I have, and that may be far more experienced than I am. And so why don't we listen? And it actually also, I found, relieved the burden on me of some of the stresses of preparation. Because once you go in with the, uh, to a meeting with the idea that it's okay not to know the answer, you don't stress over not knowing the answer before the meeting, which a lot of certainly, I think, barristers, certainly me, used to. So I think maybe when people are talking about lateral thinking, they're talking about the outputs of a process that is based on listening and including inputs from everyone. And I tend to hold that open for as long as I can, which can, I think, be quite frustrating for people who aren't used to working with me, because I suppose for some people, it might present as indecision. You know, why hasn't he made a decision on this yet? Why doesn't he know the answer? But actually, I kind of have a principle that often 
the right time for making a decision is the last moment when the decision needs to be made. Because up until that time, if you don't need to make it, why not hold open the space so that you're open to be influenced by whatever might come your way so that, you know, when you do make it, you've got as much information as you can. And that, so that might be what people are getting at, but I'm guessing, I don't know. That's what resonated with me when I read that. You are currently a highly regarded, well-renowned QC. But what impact does being at that stage of career have on you? What are the pressures and stresses, if any? That's a big question for me as well in particular. I mean, I, I kind of came off the rails the year I took Silk, to be honest. So I, I had for a few years up to that been really becoming quite frayed around the edges and at my core, to be honest. I was super successful, a bit like kind of, you know, the swan gliding along. It looks really cool from the outside, but underneath my legs were paddling like hell. And that started to take its toll and my marriage broke down and I left home. And then I, I actually physically collapsed on a train when I was on my way to a case. I don't really know why. It could have just been, you know, a food poisoning thing. It might, I don't know what it was, but I really took that as a wake up call. So when you asked me about the pressure of taking silk, you know, that's a, a part of my biography in my career that's very relevant for me. So I took silk in 2014. No one teaches you, right, how to be a silk. So this is a really odd thing, I think, at the bar as well. It's like, oh, you're ready to take silk now. Here, take silk. Okay, right. Now, what do I, what do I, what do I do? What do I do with it? How am I supposed to be? Oh, well, now you can like lead juniors. All right. Well, um, no one teaches you how to be a leader at the bar, right? No one teaches you how to lead a team. No one teaches you how to delegate. We're basically as a junior in a job where we have no one to delegate to, right? So the first few years of being in silk, I was really acting like a junior with a silks practice, which was is terrible. And I know a lot of people do the same thing. You kind of take everything on yourself. So for me, the pressure of being in silk initially was partly about sorting my own stuff out. You know, what had caused me to effectively burn out, what had caused that. And then partly about learning the skills and tools I needed, not only to be a better barrister, but also to be a leader and how to step into that role. So that's kind of what I set about learning. What leads you to be so open about your experiences? That's a difficult question because it's kind of linked to one's own personality, which is kind of a blind spot for most people. It's quite hard to know how we actually are. But um, I was faced in 2014 with a choice, really, between giving up the bar or carrying on. And the question... What I realized was I couldn't carry on the way I was doing it, but I didn't know a different way of doing it. But, you know, I worked bloody hard to get where I was and I was outwardly and in terms of profile, super successful. And I'd also left my family for all sorts of reasons, but overwork had something to do with it. And all of those things kind of culminated in me thinking I really owe it to myself and to everyone who's supported me over the years and to my children and the mother of my children not to make the same mistakes all over again not to just carry on doing the same stuff I knew that I didn't really have a future if I carried on doing things the same way I wouldn't be able to cope with that but giving up seemed like um, it seemed like I wasn't really doing myself justice and those around me justice if I did that so I thought I would stay in the game and learn different ways of doing it. And I remember giving a talk in, for Middle Temple in their series Thrive and Survive in, uh, 
end of March 2016. And it was about dealing with stress at the bar. And there were about 350 people in Middle Temple Hall. And I stood up to give this talk. And within about two or three minutes, I had sketched out this scene of me sitting opposite my therapist right <laughs> it was, you couldn't hear people say anything because they were all kind of in hushed silence but you could kind of hear them say what the hell did he just say i had so much great feedback from that talk it was really really challenging for me and i think i probably was half teary through some of it because i was still quite raw from things that had happened but what i really realized from that was not only are there a lot of people out there who through the stresses of the bar and don't have any outlet for it. And this was back in 2016. There's a lot more open dialogue about it now than there used to be. But also I was in a pretty privileged position because I was a silk, I'd won prizes, I was respected. And I could talk about these things and no one could point their finger at me and say, yeah, well, you know, Pereira would say that with me because he's a bit of a failure. He's never quite made it. And what does he know about things? So something my dad said to me was to always be kind to people because you never know where that might lead. And he, he came over here in the 50s and uh, was an eye surgeon and he was trying to get a job as a consultant. And he'd operated on somebody who was a wealthy man who drove a Rolls Royce and he'd done a cataract operation. It was a very straightforward operation. And my father went to check up on him and this guy was kind of sitting up in bed going, oh, Mr. Prairie's fantastic. You know, thanks to him, I can drive my Rolls Royce again and so on. And a few years later, my father applied for a consultant's job at the a hospital where he worked for most of his life in the West Suffolk in very St Edmunds. And he was actually against the outgoing consultant's son. And so he didn't think he had much chance of getting it, but he did get it. And some years later, he bumped into this man again and said, I'm so pleased you got that job because I told the panel how fantastic you were. <laughs> and it turned out that this man was one of the, you know, people concerned with the management of the hospital and, and in some way had been influential in getting my father the job. And it, it really stuck with me this sense of if you're in a position to help other people, then if you can, make use of that position. And so that's why I don't mind. In fact, I enjoy talking about these things because it helps others. And I've got to say, it helps me because every time I talk about it, it becomes more comfortable as well. So I do a lot of work in that realm. I do a lot of talking and well-being, a lot of writing. And as you probably guess from, from having come across some of our teaching and workshops. We're all about trying to help people resource themselves and upskill themselves so that their back of house and their connection to their power is, is in a good place to help them do their job. That's what we're about. You've done a significant amount of training yourself. So can you just expand on the sort of training that you have done that puts you in a position to powerfully coach people? I, between 2014 and about for the next few years, well, in the, those early years, received a lot of coaching and some therapy. And it really opened my eyes to how my own personal internal processes were in some respects helping me, but in many respects holding me back. And I gained so much from that experience that I thought, wow, this is super cool. And I'd love to train in it myself, not only to help myself, but to help other people. So I did that. So I I'm trained in NLP. I'm an NLP master practitioner, so that involves consideration of internal reasoning processes and the way we conceive of the world and hypnosis and matters like that. I'm a trained organizational and systems coach, which is all about relationships. I'm also trained in a form of systemic family therapy, which includes looking at family issues and family trauma, including transgenerational trauma. 
And a lot of the work I've done has been, is really based upon systemic work, which is all about integration. So it's about your bodily integration. So getting information from your feelings and your body sense, as well as your logical reason. Lawyers aren't very good at that, right? We're not, we're not trained to think about our feelings. We're trained to switch them off. But when things go badly, we know full well that we feel it. We don't reason that things gone badly. We just feel it. When things go well, we feel it, right? Um, so it's about bodily integ integration and also use of space as well. A lot of the coaching and therapy techniques that I work with are, are based on space. And of course, the court is spatial, right? You know, the witness sits in a certain place. The judge sits on high in a certain place. The parties sit in a certain place. The client sits behind you. All of those things. So space and ritual are really important as well. And so a lot of my works along those lines, and we've kind of then integrated that through my experience of legal practice to design ways of training, really. I should say Zita, who's my partner who I work with, but is also my partner, as in wife partner, um, <laughs> does this work too. She's a certified clinical hypnotherapist as well. And, and really it was through contacts that she had that I got into this area. And together, is this the Libra Partnership? Yes. So we started something a few years back called the Libra Partnership. And we are really about working in that space between the personal realm and the work realm, because we have a strong understanding that we don't leave ourselves behind when we walk into chambers or step up in court. Our personal dynamics are always at work. So if we can straddle those spaces, which is what Zita and I do, and help people resource themselves personally in a way that can help them professionally, then that to us creates the best lawyers. So we do one-on-one -on -one coaching, we do training and training workshops, we do talks and writing, and we do group and organisational coaching as well. Before we go into the workshops, one of which I have attended, is there anything else like this out there? Not that we're aware of. And I mean, I think it's needed because, you know, the bar is so insular at its influences and it's really hierarchical. And so it's conservative as a result because we, uh, you know, the pupil learns, absorbs by this mysterious process from their pupil master or pupil mistress or pupil supervisor who did it, got it from theirs, who got it from theirs, who got it from theirs. And so for all, you know, I think I've joked about this with you the other day, for all I know, I'm doing something that somebody in 1600 was doing and, and we just kind of unknowingly followed it because that's what our seniors do. And because it's so hierarchical, we look up and we think in order to succeed, we've got to be like them. And then we also have a certain arrogance, right, about our own abilities because we're smart people at the bar, we're intelligent. And there's a benefit in that. We have to, one of the things that being self-assured and being a little bit arrogant gives us is the capacity to venture into difficult places bravely. So we do need that, but we need it at times, not at all times. And I think we're quite insular and resistant to absorbing things from outside. You know, the world has moved on in ways that the bar hasn't. So I'm not aware of anyone else doing this. And what we, you know, I love my bar job, but one of the things that keeps me in it as well is that it gives me credibility to do the teaching and the coaching, because there are lots of lawyers who have left the profession through stress and burnout and so on, who then coach and teach and so on. And I respect them for doing that. Don't get me wrong, but there's something that I hope allows our message to land better and to be more effective that I'm kind of still in the game and, and still enjoying it. And I learn so much as well from being around people like you, BB, and other people that attend things that we've done or that ping us emails and write to us because 
It can be very easy for senior members of the profession not to, to forget what things are like at the junior end. And it's good to keep those connections up so that what we do can be remain relevant to what people need. Having attended the Communicating Well workshop, firstly, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. It was just done so well. One of the things that I really took from it was the fact that everything that I had learned, I can actually apply in my own practice. So kudos to both you and Zita for creating something that's so in tune, really, I think, with what lawyers need. So any listeners, we're going to put the details of the Libra Partnership on the website. So please go there if you want to find out more. Now, James, what I did want to talk to you about was one of the exercises that you had us do. And it was focused on relationships. And what we had to do was think about a challenge or an obstacle between two people. And one person would take turns and one person would consider this challenge from their own point of view. And then you step into the other, physically step into the other person's space. So you'd all move around and think about that challenge from their point of view. And then the final move would be to move into the middle of those two spaces and consider what the relationship needed. When I started doing this, I went into more of a neutral position when I came into the relationship. I thought, oh, to make the relationship work, perhaps a bit of give and take here and here. But when I had a conversation with you about it, you said, well, no, not necessarily. You can do that exercise and look at what it is that you need for your cross-examination. And that elevates your position already. So can we just talk a bit about that, please? (laughs) Yeah. So it's a lovely example because it kind of encapsulates most of what I've mentioned. So this is a basic relationship coaching exercise. So you take your stance in the relationship, you then move, as you say, physically move to the other person's stance and look back to where you previously were and you take their place in the relationship and you try and tune in with what's there for them. And then you stand in between and you kind of see the relationship as a third entity. Now, normally, if one's doing this in relationship coaching, it would be all, all about trying to, you know, figure out what's coming between you. And if you're committed to continuing your relationship, you know, what you'd need to do to make things work better in the future and all the rest of that. But of course, what we're really paid to do is to further our clients' ends. So you can approach that exercise. And I mean, one can do that exercise physically, or one can just kind of picture it in one's head when one's got used to it. So when you're sitting down with your papers, you can just kind of go run through it in your head. We can do that exercise with the question in our minds, what do I need to bring to this relationship to further my client's ends? So if I'm sitting down planning a cross-examination, I think to myself, what do I need to bring to the relationship with this witness to further my client's ends? And that's a different question to thinking about you know, what do I want or what do they want? It moves beyond the kind of me and the you to a kind of us space, if you like. And the reason it's powerful is because it helps develop intentionality, you know, because it leads on to the question of how do I need to be in order to create this relationship? So it helps you not just show up, but actually decide how you're going to be. And I'm going to expand on this in a moment. But it also works in the realm of the hidden. The space between me and a witness, or you and a witness, or you and an opponent, or you and a judge, is an unspoken space, right? And if you can create it, it can work for you. 
without you having to make it obvious. It's almost like you've got someone else on your side because the relationship is working for you. So let me give an example, right? I might think to myself, you know, what do I need to bring to this relationship? It might be trust or it might be excitement or it might be acknowledgement or it might be authority or it might be humor. It might be intimacy. It might be vulnerability, right? These are all qualities that we can kind of put into the relationship space. They might change in the course of cross-examination, you know, because depending on the theme that one's cross-examining on, you might want to change the flavor of the relationship to make it conducive to that theme. But once you've got these ideas, you can then ask yourself, okay, if I need to bring authority, how do I need to be? And that will affect your obvious things like your voice, your tone, your stance, your presence, your pace, the words that you choose to ask the questions, all of those things. So these are like little lenses or organizing principles that you can then use. When you're taught cross-examination, what you're really taught conventionally is what information do you need to get out? How do you ask a leading question to get the information? This is all the other stuff that packs around that, that influences that. And for me, it's a far more resourceful way of looking at things because you're making sure that from the foundations to the very heart of the question, everything is kind of aligned with what you want. And let me just give a very simple, practical example. So I was doing a case a few years back, a compulsory purchase case. So compulsory purchase is where you take someone's property, government takes the property by compulsion. And you have to show a compelling case in the public interest to do this. One of the areas that we were acquiring was two properties that were owned by a family and they had come to this country in the 60s as immigrants from South India and bought a shop. And then they had worked hard and got the income from the shop and bought the flat above them. And then they'd rented that out and bought the property next door. And all they wanted to do was pass it on to their children and it was going to be taken away. And they get some compensation for it, but the compensation never quite reflects value and also there's this sentimental emotional element of what they had achieved and done when they came here that they wanted to pass on and so the um, lady who was the kind of head of the family turned up with her counsel and her expert witnesses and she was absolutely quite understandably angry and furious wouldn't agree with anything we had to say so when I started cross-examining her I'd gone through this process. I thought, what's really needed here in this relationship? And what I thought was, what's needed is acknowledgement. No one is actually, has actually called out the fact that this is a terribly distressing thing that's happening. So I started cross-examining her and I said, you know, Mrs. Whatever, I just want to start by saying, this must be really, really upsetting for you to face the threat of having everything you've worked for taken away from you. And she said, yes, it's awful. And she started crying. And I said to her, well, I just want to take a few moments in this inquiry room to acknowledge what you're going through and how challenging it is for you. And I sat there quietly for about probably only 30 seconds. It seemed like a lifetime, it's probably only about half a minute. And everyone just sat there quietly. No one said anything. And she cried and she was allowed to cry. And after she'd done that, I said to her, you know, I do have to ask you some questions. So are you okay to move on? And she said, yes, thank you. And we moved on and everything from then on was fine. Now, did I need to technically in order to get evidence out of her, do any of that? Absolutely not. 
But did I need to do that to get the evidence out of her? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because this was the thing in the relationship between my client and her that was getting in the way. Nobody had said to her, yeah, it's not really nice this, what you're going through. And so it's that element that I'm talking about that enables interactions to be so much more resourceful, whether it's cross-examination or it's submissions with the judge, you know, whatever it might be. I want to give you another example um, that came to me before we came online. I remember one of the great former members of our chambers is Keith Limblom, who's now Lord Justice Limblom in the Court of Appeal. He's a fantastic advocate. He would just charm people. It'd be like sitting in the living room. He would charm them. And towards the end of the cross-examination, if I was taking notes, I was lucky to be led by him a few times, he'd be asking questions. And you think, first of all, you think, how did you ever imagine that you could ask that question? And how on earth is the witness answering it favorably? And it would be like, you'd already thought he got 100%. And there'd be like another 15% that would come out and it would just come from nowhere. And literally my pen would be shaking because I think, how on, how, on, how on earth is this happening? How on earth is this happening? But he was really smart at figuring out how to influence the witness. And I remember one thing he did when it was a landscape witness who was being cross-examined. We'd found a proof of evidence from another case they'd done that was quite damaging. And we produced this document. And at the start of the cross-examination, he said, so, Miss So-and-so, you know, you confirm your name is So-and-so. So, yes. And you used to work for this firm. Yes. And I'm just going to show you this document. Is this a proof of evidence signed by you? Uh, yes. Expert report. Yes. And can you confirm it's on landscape matters? Yes. And if we turn to this page, you, you know, and he did just enough to remind her of what she'd said about something in the past, but didn't ask her any questions about it. And then he said, Okay, well, we'll come back to that later. And it was like lighting a fuse under the witness that influenced the whole of the rest of the cross-examination because she never knew at what moment the thing she didn't want to face that was inconsistent with everything she said was going to come back to her. And it created this tension in the relationship between Keith and the witness. And it meant that she was never relaxed she was always on guard. She could never quite commit to what she wanted to say because she knew there was something there that was going to undermine it later. And it was absolute genius. And it's things like that that I'm talking about. How do we create a relationship that furthers our clients' ends? And that's what that exercise was really about. Well, just speaking about cross-examination, we've had a conversation before about how it's actually a multi-layered form of communication. So in respect to the witness, not only are you trying to elicit questions from them. As you've just mentioned, they can be put on edge by something being planted and then thinking, oh no, when's it going to come out? But also it's a communication to the judge. So you're not so worried about what the witness says. You're telling the judge what your story is. And perhaps some of the questions may be guessing the evidence, but it will, you know, it's going to unnerve your opponent. So you've got all of this communication going in. So do you think that you've been through all the work that you have done, that you have a more heightened awareness to the different types of communication that's going on in the courtroom? Well, I do feel I've got a good awareness of that. And that is helped by all of the coaching and also the kind of organisational team coaching, which is about the kind of greater complexity of relationships beyond kind of one-on-one. -on -one. And I've always loved that aspect of cross-examination. You know, I think that kind of bit of advice we're always given, never ask a question that you don't know the answer to, is a really bad piece of advice, right? Because sometimes you don't really care what the answer is. It's the question that's important. You know, there are so many of these kind of aphorisms that have probably had their day and need to be consigned to the graveyard, really. 
So I like to play when I'm on my feet. I like to engage in that process of,、um, yeah, pressing people's buttons sometimes. If it's not for the sake of it, obviously, but if it's going to help the case to destabilize the opponent or destabilize the client, you know, often I think of the imagery of kind of launching a missile in the other side's camp, you know, and setting something off in there, which. And sometimes in communications, I'll want to try and undermine the other side's confidence in their advocate. You know, I'll do that quite deliberately, and it might work, it might not work. Who knows? But it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any examples of those secret things that you do? This might not be dead on point for the, your question, but for the theme of what you're asking me, it probably is. So, in no particular order. I mean, one thing I do now, which I Which I've never would have had the courage to do in the past, and it's come from coaching. Is cross-examine based on body language, right? I would never have done that. What one learns from coaching and therapy is that the body sends out signals which the person can't control or often isn't aware of, and of course, you can't always read body language accurately. And it would be arrogant to suggest that one could always do that, but one can use it. So I'll give you an example. I was. Cross-examining an expert a few years back, he was a traffic transportation expert, and he'd made some、um, reached some conclusions about traffic impact and capacity and so on from a development my client was promoting, and it looked like there was some kind of basis for it, but it wasn't very clear. So I said, "Well, you know, what's the basis for what you've said?" And he said, "Well, you know, I,、uh, that's my judgment." And I said, "Yeah, sure, but but what's? I appreciate it's your judgment, but you know, what's your judgment?" Based on, and he more or less gave the same answer. And then the last time I asked it, he put his hands on his heart, and he said, I, I, "He said, I just, I, I know that that's the way it's going to be." And he pressed his hands on his heart. And so I paused, and I said to him, "Just show the inspector." So we have planning inspectors in our in our planning inquiry. Just show the inspector what you just did. And of course, he didn't realise what he'd just done. So. I said to him, "Do you mind if I show the inspector what you just did?" And this is another thing I like doing, which is to get. Permission from the witness to kind of take their power away, you know. Let me show you what you just did, and once the witness says yes, the witness has surrendered, you know, some of their authority, right? Which has given me another example, which I'll tell you in a second. And I so I put my hands on my heart, and I went, "Sir, the witness just did this." So I said, "You know, Mr. Smith, what does this mean to you?" Oh no, what part of your body were you touching? My heart, he said. So what's that mean to you when you put your Hand on your heart, and you answered that question. And in the end, he said, "Well, I, I just feel that that's the way it's going to be." And of course, if you're an expert and you based your opinion on feeling, you're finished. So not only did that finish him then, but then anything I didn't like that he gave in his evidence later on, I I would then put my hand on my heart and say, "Oh, Mr. Smith, is that another of your feelings?" And just constantly <laughs> undermine him. Another thing that this reminded me of is another thing I do, you know, sometimes, which is to get. Witnesses, experts, to write on their evidence. You know, so for example, if there's a page and it's not quite the paragraphs, I'm going to say, you know, Mr. Jones, please can you just get a pen and just number, you know, paragraph one, paragraph two, paragraph three, paragraph four, because it's a way of taking control. It's a way of controlling, of taking authority away from them, 
And Mr. Judge, I'm going to write on your evidence. You're going to do it for me, but I'm going to. <laughs> it's a way of uh, redressing or imbalancing the power dynamic. And I think all of those little tricks are are really important. So that's one. Uh, that's there's a couple of examples. Another thing, and you must stop me if I just keep going on. So another example I had. So I had a case just before lockdown where it was a private prosecution that I was defending and the prosecutor, he had his own silk count cell, but he was a quite an eminent tax silk at the planning bar. And I was thinking, how on earth am I going to cross-examine this guy? Because he's been doing this for like 40 years and he's going to know every twist and turn. And I realized that I was building him up into this kind of giant figure in front of me whenever I pictured cross-examining him. So there's a technique that we use in NLP where you kind of frame images and play around with them. I kind of put myself in a kind of mini trance, pictured him, put a frame around it, and on the corner of the frame, I put a, a little knob that I could turn, and one direction said bigger, and the other end said smaller. And so I got his image in a frame, and I just turned it to smaller, and I shrunk him. <laughs> this, this grand silk in my mind turned from a giant into this, like, kind of mini-man. And whenever I sat down to plan my cross-examination and review the papers, I would make sure I first fixed him in my mind as mini-man. And when I stood up to cross-examine him in the, on the day of the trial, he was mini-man. And I could cross-examine him fine. And we have so many unconscious patterns that we have running that unless we can bring an awareness to them can kind of lead us to become unstuck. I guess the watchword, or the, to encapsulate it, it's about intentionality. It's about being as intentional and purposeful as we can be in the way we interact. And that's all about planning and having the tools and the skill set to bring that to bear on our interactions with others. Yeah. How involved is a client in the decision-making process? I guess the starting point is that one's advocacy within you know, normal bounds is one's own responsibility. I will often share ideas that I'm having when I'm preparing my cases with clients, I will often share my cross-examination notes in draft with my team to get feedback and so that they know where they're going. I think it also helps the team prepare as well to see what I'm likely to be doing or saying. I'll give two examples of client involvement. So sometimes the client will have far closer insights into people and their personalities than I will because they'll have a better relationship and a long-going relationship. So. I did a case which settled actually, but it was about a holiday park on the East Anglian coast that was suffering from coastal erosion. And my clients were being blamed for it. They built a, a structure down the coast that was said to have influenced the tidal flows and so on. And this holiday park was in the third generation or fourth generation of family ownership. And so it seemed to me that one of the really strong themes from the other side's perspective or one of the drivers was going to be a kind of emotional attachment of loyalty towards preserving what you know great great grandfather had created after world war 1 this was seemed to me to be something really powerful because it had the potential to explain why the claimant might be taking action against us and it also had the potential whether fairly or not to explain why the claimant maybe biased and narrow-minded. And so I had this theme, which I did explore with the clients first, that I would open the cross-examination of the 
holiday park owner with a piece around how great an achievement it was of their family to have set this up and kept in the business. And then flip that to the loyalties that the current owner must have in ensuring the preservation of the legacy that had been created and how terrible it must be to see this falling into the sea and that it must be unbearable for him to think that this was happening on his watch and therefore someone else must surely be responsible for it because the idea that it was his responsibility would be unthinkable because that would be disloyal to his family and almost be betraying his legacy. And I had this expression that I was going to end with that part of the cross-examination. Well, we've heard, haven't we, of the expression that loyalty is blind. And I was going to use every time I then came across something that he didn't agree with, that seemed to be contrary to some of the evidence we had, I would just ring this. Well, here's another example of blind loyalty, isn't it? You can't actually see what's in front of you because you're so heavily loyal and driven by upholding your family's legacy. And so it's little things like that, but I wouldn't dare do that without getting some intel from the rest of the team about who this person is. Another example is my client was being prosecuted once and it was a case where in order to succeed, the prosecution needed to show that we had harmed the historic interest of this listed building. And we had agreed the historic experts evidence for the prosecution, so they weren't being called. And the written evidence hadn't quite hit the nail on the head, but they were calling their planner, their planning witness, their planning expert, who could, if he wanted to, have patched up the difference. And so what I needed to do was get the planning, the planning witness who was being called live to distance themselves from the heritage experts witness because I didn't want him patching up the heritage evidence. So what I decided to do was if the planner was called Mr. Smith and the heritage expert was called Mr. Jones, I decided that when the planner stood up to give evidence, so his name is, I was going to call him Mr. Jones. I was going to call him by the name of the other witness. And I said, so I said to my client before, and look, when you see me, I'm going to call this witness by the wrong name and it will seem as though I'm muddled, but, I, but I'm not. So just trust me. So the, Smith stands up. I said, oh, you're Mr. Jones, aren't you? The heritage witness. He goes, no, I'm not. I'm Mr. Smith. No, no, no. Surely you're Mr. Jones, the heritage expert. No, no, no. I'm Mr. Smith, the planner. Oh, so you're not the heritage expert at all. No, I'm not a heritage expert. Thank you. Sat down. And then, of course, they couldn't then repair the evidence with his testimony. So it's little things like that. If it looks like it might look a bit crazy, then I'll, or I need some intel on it, then obviously I'll ask. But I think that's just preparation anyway. What practical steps can we take as trial lawyers to start communicating well? I guess the things I do more now that I didn't do before are listening, really, really listening. You know, there's that old saying, isn't there? We, we listen in order to respond. And I think a lot of the time we're trained to be building our response while the other person's talking rather than actually listening and exploring with them what they're talking about. So I would say listening is one of the main communication skills. You'll remember there was a listening exercise in our communications workshop and ask, you know, why am I listening? Am I listening to find out uh, things? Am I listening to answer? Am I listening to sense into what's wanting to change? You know, what's being asked for in this case? There are all sorts of levels of listening and we need to kind of tune ourselves to that so we can listen purposefully. I think the other thing that's really important around communication is rapport and rapport building. You know, what's my body language? What's my stance? Where am I looking? What direction am I in in relation to the other person? I mean, when I'm doing a beauty parade, I will 
try not to sit across the table from the client. I will want to sit kind of not alongside them, but maybe kind of at a right angle to them so that they can start to see me as somebody who is alongside them. And we're looking at a space on the table together, which is the space of our future working together, rather than being opposite each other, which is often the sense of opposition. And so these little things and also, you know, mimicking our language and using the same language patterns or um, bodily movements as others to make them feel at ease and so on, the same pace, the same pitch. These kind of subtleties, I think, are really important as well because they help build rapport and trust and ease in the way we are with others. So those are two things that come to mind, which are kind of less mainstream, but I think for a lot of people, certainly for me anyway, required attention. That's very helpful. And so to my final questions for you, what are three practical tips that you have for our listeners to improve their advocacy? In no particular order, I would say story, put things in a story, put your cross-examination in an order that tells a story, you know, and that can mean anything from, you know, making things understandable and kind of humanly accessible to, you know, having cliffhangers or having strands that you start and then you come back to so that you're kind of opening doors that the judge or the witness is having to kind of stand in front and then coming back and, and closing them off, you know, building a pressure at a certain point that then needs to be released. There are all kinds of techniques that we can use that's about the ordering of the points and how we take them that give a flow and an excitement and an engagement to things, you know, beyond this idea that it's just about the logic of how we take, get the points out. So think about story and flow, which is about ordering and how we bring the points out. That's the first thing. The second thing I'm bound to say is self-resourcing, learning things and tools and techniques so that we show up in the best state we can be in for whatever it is we've got to do. I really, really rile against the idea that, you know, so-and-so is this kind of barrister and such and such a person is that kind of barrister. We should all have the agility to bring a particular way of being as the witness or the interaction or the case requires. And that's about personal resourcing, being intentional, and because it is challenging for us, it means that we have to deal with our internal mechanisms and our internal patterns as well. So that would be the third thing I would say on personal resourcing, not only learning tools and techniques and so on and intentionality, but actually if you're an advocate and I was one of these advocates, you know, I would find that, um, you know, if I had a male judge of a certain age, I knew there was something in me that was slightly uneasy. And what I discovered was it was because it reminded me of a certain kind of dynamic with my father and it was disempowering for me. And so if you've got things that keep happening in your practice, you know, a way you keep feeling when you come before a certain judge or, you know, if a witness in cross-examination, if they get aggressive with you, if you feel that yourself backing off or you don't have the tools to deal with it, if you want to improve in that sphere, go and get some help with your internal dynamics because the chances are it's something around, you know, conflict, for example, that you find uncomfortable. And all of these things are completely solvable. You know, we're all running our patterns from the way we're brought up and a lot of it works well and some of it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it's perfectly solvable. But we can incapacitate ourselves unnecessarily 
by not attending to some of our internal dynamics if they come up. So that's the other thing I would say, kind of doing your um, internal housekeeping if you need to. Thank you so much. And finally, where can our listeners connect with you online? So I love connecting with people. So I'd love anyone who wants to connect, please don't hesitate and do so. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, James Pereira QC. You can find the Libra Partnership on LinkedIn as well. Our Libra Partnership website is thelibrapartnership.com and you can email us at contact at thelibrapartnership.com. You'll also see stuff we write in Cancel magazine. We write fairly regularly and um, uh, we've got an article coming out in December about psychological safety and team leadership. And we also publish on The Lawyer online. There's a series called Loving Legal Life, which comes out approximately uh, monthly. So you can find us there. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.